I think, I think that at least the majority of you are aware that as we're transitioning into this new year, we, First City Church, have announced that I will be making a big transition. I'll be moving to work full-time at First City Church in 2021. Thank, thank you. Um, so in light of that, I, I just want to thank many of you for how you have encouraged my family and I in the midst of such significant transition, how you've prayed for us, um, as well as for giving financially to this church to make that move possible. So, so as, I, as I've begun to share with, with some in the church and some outside the church about coming on staff, one of the common questions people ask is, what will you be doing? Exactly what will First City Church be paying you for? Someone wondered this week if I would be a youth pastor, which I was flattered by. I mean, I, I think of youth pastors as friendly and funny, and I don't feel like I come across that way very often. I'm too somber and serious and agenda-oriented. So just so everyone knows, I will not be serving as a youth pastor. So to define our mission at First City Church, we, we say this. First City Church exists to glorify God by making disciples, planting churches, and working for the good of our city. So that means one aspect of our mission is make disciples. Now, a way we make disciples is to preach God's word, to open up the scriptures, to learn how to engage the Bible and understand how it applies to our lives. This is how we make disciples on Sunday mornings. Some refer to this type of ministry as public ministry. It is making disciples during a public gathering of people. Now, while I have grown as a preacher the past five years, this type of ministry, preaching on a Sunday morning, it's not my strength. So another way we make disciples, some refer to as private ministry. These are the conversations we have with one another over coffee or on the phone or in the context of a gospel community. And we listen to particular struggles and temptations and trials of specific individuals. And in doing that, we apply God's word. We proclaim the gospel to that individual. I don't like the term private ministry because it can imply making disciples or growing as a disciple is done apart from others, and that's not the case. As a form of ministry, it involves others. So maybe a better way to describe the difference between these two types of ministry is that during public gatherings, we make disciples of a particular people, the people of First City Church. And in smaller gatherings, we make disciples of particular persons, specific individuals. So while we, we don't have an official job description of everything I'll do as a pastor, in many ways, it's going to be that type of discipleship, spending time with leaders and members and attenders of our church to help them grow as individuals into mature disciples of Jesus. Now, with my transition 
to our staff team, that does not relieve the members and attenders of this church from carrying out our mission. Far from it. Part of my role will be to better equip the members and attenders of this church to live it out. Because living out this mission to make disciples is very much core to what it means to follow Jesus. In what is known as the Great Commission, Jesus commanded all of his disciples, every one of us who has surrendered a life to Christ, to go and make disciples. This means that every Christian is a disciple, learning what it means to follow Jesus, to surrender more of our life and more of our ways to him. And it means making disciples is something every Christian is called to do. It's not just mature Christians or the paid staff of a church, every Christian. Now, sometimes living out that mission primarily involves making disciple of people in your home, own home, teaching your kids and your spouse what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes that mission expands to make disciples of others in the church, kids in our church or adults in our church, taking time to learn from them and teach them what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes that mission involves a neighbor or an extended family member or a friend or a coworker. Each of us, as we live out what it means to follow Jesus, is called to participate in that mission to make disciples. So over the past few months, during our public gatherings, we've been learning from the book of 1 Corinthians. And while the Apostle Paul doesn't use the language make disciples, or the term discipleship, which is the process of discipling others, it's what he's doing. He's discipling the Christians at Corinth. And for that matter, he's discipling you and I. And as we come to this section of Scripture, Paul pauses and clarifies his purpose for writing the things he's writing. And he describes his perspective on discipleship. As such, as we turn the corner into a new year and consider ways we want our lives to be different, And as I turn the corner into this new full-time pastoral role, it's fitting the big idea is Paul's description of discipleship, the Apostle Paul. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. In this passage, we're going to find the Apostle seems to be aware that some misunderstand. Some may misunderstand his purpose for writing. Some may have a false view of discipleship. They may misunderstand what it means to be a mature follower of Christ, getting the end goal confused. As such, we're going to look at three false views of discipleship, which often plague people in the church even today. And we'll explore what discipleship is, Paul's thought process and strategy for what it means to be a disciple and how to grow as a disciple and how to make disciples of others. So let's, let's talk about the first false view of discipleship, and that's to experience feelings of fault. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. I am not writing this to shame you. 
but to admonish you as my beloved children. So Paul has been addressing areas the Corinthians lack maturity, and he's used pointed the language. Pastor Chris mentioned last week to focus on issues, he's used sarcasm. Paul seems to think their response to his appeals, to, to his language, could be to experience feelings of shame or sorrow or self-pity. Now, maybe you know why Paul might think that. When someone points out an area of sin in your life or an area you're weak and need to grow, you respond by experiencing shame and sadness and self-pity. I noticed you tend to complain a lot. You don't really listen all that well when I'm sharing how I'm doing or when others share how they're doing. You tend to be kind of self-absorbed or too self-focused and agenda-oriented. I kind of think you had a little bit too much to drink last night. You know, I shared some personal information with you and I found out you shared it with others. When others offer that type of feedback... Your response is marked by having a pit in your stomach. You feel awful. You hang your head in shame. When others provide this type of feedback, very, very few, if any, ever say, I'm telling you this so you will be ashamed and feel sad and experience self-pity. No one outright says the end goal of such a conversation is to experience feelings of fault. But internally, we adopt some false belief that we are defined by our sin and our faults and our failure. Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to admonish you, to warn you. Paul's ultimate desire for the Christians isn't to experience shame. He wants them to be warned about a way they're living that is a concern. So it's loving criticism. Because I love you, because I care about you and the way you're living, I need to tell you this. The individual is expressing concern about the spiritual state of another's heart and life. These kind of things are are like when a parent warns their child, stop, don't run in the street. Or says, hey, you need to share with your sister. Or when talking to a teenage child, I'm concerned about how you're pursuing relationships and interacting with others. The purpose is not for a child to experience shame. The purpose is for them to experience something different. For for them to avoid a way of life that can cause harm and hurt to them and to others. Paul has been discipling the Corinthians to not be divided to stop arguing in ways they're acting like infants, to not ultimately pursue worldly wisdom, not so they would experience shame, but so they would be aware of areas of concern. They could think about those areas and have a sense of urgency those areas need to change. Every disciple of Jesus is going to make mistakes. Every disciple of Jesus, this side of heaven, is going to struggle with sin. Every disciple of Jesus is going to fail in how they love others. As others are in relationship with you, in all your imperfections and struggles, if they love you, 
If they long for you to grow, they will talk to you about those areas. And the goal of such conversations is not so you would be ashamed. Someone committed to grow as a disciple and committed to making disciples of others will have all sorts of challenging conversations. When those conversations happen, the end goal is not feelings of shame and self-pity or even sorrow and sadness over sin. Lots of people can feel bad about their actions, but that doesn't make them a disciple. So that's a false view of the end goal of discipleship. That's the first one. A second false view is to make the end goal better behavior. So if one mistake is to overemphasize these feelings of sorrow over sin or shame over sin, another is to make the end goal of discipleship better behavior. So as Paul continues to describe his purpose for writing, he says this in verse 15. For those, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, Paul says the Corinthians have countless guides in Christ. That term, guide. So, so among the wealthy Greeks and Romans, guides were trustworthy slaves or servants that supervised the life and the morals of boys. A boy was not often allowed out of the house without this guide before arriving at the age of manhood. So, so the purpose of this guide was to make sure a boy behaved a particular way, to micromanage his behavior. You can imagine providing commands like, don't run in the street. You need to study, not play. Salute this figure of authority. Put your hand this way. The guide enforced a code of conduct. Now, it's not, not that a guide is a bad thing. The law is referred to as a guide. We need guides in Christ, individuals who talk with us about our actions and behavior, like an accountability partner, someone checking in on our viewing habits or how we handle anger. The problem becomes, the problem becomes when we adopt a view, discipleship is ultimately about better behavior, that view is incomplete. When we approach discipleship this way, we teach Christianity is ultimately about adhering to or complying with particular morals, to not lie, to not steal, to not gossip, to not get drunk, to not be anxious, to share our toys, to give our income to the church. Such a view is incomplete. Discipleship is not about producing minions or robots or carbon copies of people who perfectly imitate one another in our actions. It's something different. Let me, get, let me give you an example. Many men and women in the church at large and in our church struggle with anxiety. That anxiety can manifest itself as preoccupation, not being considerate of others, not loving others well, being isolated from community. So one way a church could address this is through a program. Reading and reciting passages of Scripture. Making commitments to not be anxious. Learning strategies to avoid tri triggers. Having an accountability partner to call or text when struggling and to regularly check in. This is not a bad thing. 
But if the end goal of discipleship becomes don't be anxious, better behavior, living a life free of anxiety, our understanding of discipleship is incomplete and false. The image Paul uses to to contrast guide is fathering. Parents certainly care about behavior, but more than actions, they care about the disposition and attitude of the heart. We'll talk more about that in a bit. So Paul is not saying we shouldn't be corrected when behaving badly or returning to feelings of fault. He's not saying we shouldn't feel sorrow and shame over sin. When true discipleship occurs, we will grieve sin. We will understand how our behavior and actions wreck areas of our life. And we will experience behavior change. But that is not the ultimate goal of discipleship. Lots of people can behave better but that doesn't make them a disciple. So so adopting a view that feelings of fault and better behavior are the end goals of discipleship is false. Let's look at one more false view to view the end goal of discipleship as transformed talk, adopting a particular type of talk. As Paul provides an additional description of individuals causing division, or individuals making accusations about him, casting doubts about his character, he describes a particular mark of how they are known for interacting with others in verses 18 through 20. Let's read that. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but but in power. So these individuals are described as being arrogant. And a primary way this is expressed is the way they talk. They are winsome with their words, but there is a problem. Paul is concerned that talk is disconnected from power. Their life may not match what they say. Their actions may be inconsistent with what they teach and inconsistent with the gospel. To to set the stage for how all Christians are called into this mission of making disciples, I mentioned something called the Great Commission earlier. Let's go there for a moment and listen to what Jesus calls his disciples into. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So living out the Great Commission, making disciples of others, means we teach others. But it is not completed with the acquisition of information. When others are able to recite and talk about all we have taught. Jesus doesn't say, teach them to say what I say. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded such a response, that is powerful. Many of us confuse a mature disciple of Jesus to be someone who articulates matters of faith with proper grammar and advanced language. They can say the right things. I think this can be a significant temptation in a church like ours that values talking rightly about God and his character. As we come out of the Advent season, 
Many of us listen to gifted members of our church talk about their faith. As we navigate the year, we encounter individuals who lead Bible studies or gospel communities, and we can be impressed by how they talk about the scriptures. Admiring and giving thanks for how others talk about what it means to follow Jesus is not a bad thing. But making it the end goal of discipleship is, oh, to be a mature Christian, I have to talk the way they talk. Someone believing this confuses spiritual maturity with thinking and talking theologically. As such, maybe they have memorized passages of Scripture or even entire chapters or books of the Bible. And as they talk, they are sure to recite Romans 8.28 or Hebrews 12.1 or John 3.16. They let you know that they know the Scriptures. Now, Now, many of us need to grow in our understanding of the Bible and in our understanding of theological concepts. But there's a problem when we equate the end goal of discipleship as an ability to talk theology. The purpose of discipleship is not transformed talk, a particular type of talk. Lots of people can talk theology. They can accumulate information. They can effectively argue a particular viewpoint, but that doesn't make them a disciple. That's a false view of discipleship. So let's pause for a moment and reflect on these false views for a moment. Knowing they're false should bring us some freedom. Because when others have challenging conversations with us, when we become aware of sin and areas we need to grow, the end result should not be us hanging our heads in shame. In Christ, Jesus does not and will not shame us. He takes on all our sin and all our shame and gives us his perfection. He views us as if we have always performed perfectly and obeyed him joyfully. That's how we're defined. And there should be great freedom in that. Likewise, knowing the ultimate result of discipleship isn't better behavior or a life free of sin should free us to be honest about our faults, about how we need Christ to mature and grow. There should be great freedom in that. And knowing the end result of discipleship isn't about foolishly pursuing understanding terms and nuances of of speaking some foreign language as you try to assimilate fancy words into your vocabulary, like dispensationalism or reformed or evangelical or soteriology or Calvinism, that should give us great freedom. Paul is inviting Christians into something, and those things, they may be a byproduct of what he's inviting us into, but they are not the goal. So what is If the destination is not to experience feelings of fault, shame and sorrow over sin, and not to behave better, and not to transform our talk, what is it? Let's turn to what Paul says in verses 16 and 17. This is what he says. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
So discipleship is ultimately about learning a way of life, a new way of life. That word ways, it refers to a way of thinking, feeling, and deciding. It's not academic information, but more of a compass indicative of values and beliefs. Author Bill Hull in the complete book of discipleship says this, discipleship isn't a program or an event, it's a way of life. It's not for a limited time, but for our whole life. Discipleship isn't for beginners, isn't for beginners alone, it's for believers for every day of their life. Discipleship isn't just one of the things the church does. It's what the church does. It's what all the church does. Discipleship is about understanding a new way of life, what it means to follow Christ every day. Discipleship is not about memorizing and complying with some code of Christian conduct. It's about learning to walk in faith and repentance in all areas of life throughout every day of life, in every situation of life, learning the way of living in light of a renewed heart given to us by Christ through the power of the gospel. So as Paul describes discipleship throughout this passage, as it is described throughout all of scripture, learning this way of life is not about learning a code of conduct, but more understanding who we are in Christ understanding that identity. So in verse 14, when Paul says he's not writing the Corinthians to shame them, he finishes referring to them as my beloved children. He wants them to know they are loved and they are part of his spiritual family. They are babies in Christ, even his babies in Christ. In verse 15, he says, for in Christ Jesus... I became your father through the gospel. Which means the Corinthians don't just relate to Paul as a good teacher, which he is a good teacher. They don't just relate to him as a good boss or a good guardian. They are family. And that family is not united because of common viewpoints or voting patterns. Their relationship is not rooted in temporary circumstances. They are forever linked by Christ as family. In verse 17, Paul identifies Timothy as his beloved child. The gospel has changed the way Paul views himself, the way he views life, and the way he views others. So one implication of Paul using this language means we enter this new way of life or this different way of life as children. In the Gospels, Jesus uses the language, we must be born again. We experience a new birth into a new way of life, which means we don't enter this new way of life having it all figured out. Like children, we have much to learn. We are dependent on others for growth. We need spiritual parents to teach us this new way of life. Another implication of Paul using this language about discipleship means when we make disciples, it's not simply about teaching information or serving as an accountability partner or challenging someone to grieve over sin 
someone committed to making disciples of others is a spiritual parent. So Paul uses the language father here in describing his ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says it this way, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So making disciples of others to help others learn this new way of life. It's how a child learns to live from a parent. Therefore, the the primary strategy Paul emphasizes for growing as a disciple and making disciples of others is something called imitation. So my kids ultimately don't learn how to drive or learn how to be generous or learn how to love others or learn how to function in marriage through six-hour classes. As I think about Rachel and Brianna growing as women, they're, they're my older daughters, as I think about them growing as women who are dating or who will be dating, I haven't said, hey, every Sunday night at seven, I want you to show up for your dating class. That's not how they grow into mature adults. But we oftentimes approach discipleship like this. We want the class that will help us mature. We want the program that will help us become a better Christian. Discipleship is not about acquiring the right academic information. And as much as you, may be, you and I may be tempted to think, we can't learn the life of a disciple by watching YouTube videos or by engaging online sermons or by listening to podcasts. When we make discipleship about acquiring information, we dismiss our need to live in relationship with others. You can grab your Bible, you can spend time in prayer, you can confess your sins, and you can thank God for his blessings, and you don't need others. This is why I don't like the term private ministry. Discipleship is not a private matter. Paul affirms a primary strategy for individuals to grow as a disciple is living in a community of Christians. Christians who love Jesus and who worship him and who want others to grow in maturity in the faith. You need people to imitate. You need to see people and how they interact with God. Discipleship is very much rooted in experiencing the physical presence of others. So, to grow as a disciple, find examples to follow. Or or maybe we should put it in the form of a question. As we transition into this new year, how will you find an example to follow? Disciples learn from others. Robert Coleman in the Master Plan of Evangelism says it this way. It is good to tell people what we mean, but it is infinitely better to show them. People are looking for a demonstration, not an explanation. So a couple quick observations as we consider Paul's emphasis on imitation. The first, as we seek individuals to imitate, it is less about biological maturity and more about spiritual maturity. Many younger Christians, some in this church, 
rightly live out what it means to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. You, you and I, we have much to learn from the way younger Christians live. A second observation uh, involves presence with others. It, it, Paul emphasizes this. is why he says he is sending Timothy. There's this connection between discipleship and having close connections with people, close enough that you can offer personal feedback and learn what it means to grow as a disciple uh, from another. And, and this is one of the reasons why we emphasize the importance of gospel community and why we say most weeks, if you're only attending Sunday gatherings, you're very much missing out on much of what it means to grow as a disciple. Discipleship is not about a particular program. It's about getting with people. So friends, if you want to learn to be a brother or sister in Christ who encourages others, hang out with someone in our church like Talitha Fugate. Learn from her. If you want to learn how to have rich, quiet times, getting in a secret place with the Lord, hang out with someone in our church like Thomas McCauley. If you want to learn how to treasure God's word, get with someone in our church like Caitlin Matthews or Renee White. If you want to learn how to serve others sacrificially, get with someone in our church like a Brad Simmons. And if you want to learn how to talk with neighbors and coworkers about Jesus, get with an Andrea Miller or an MJ McNaughton. There are so many others I could list. My point, stop looking for a 12-step program to grow as a disciple. Have the curiosity of a child. Too many of us were too insecure, too insecure to receive the critiques from others, too insecure to ask others to help us learn. In 2021... May we be known for having the curiosity of a child to learn from others what it means to follow Jesus. Now, in addition to insecurity getting in the way of us reaching out to others to grow as a disciple and preventing us from receiving feedback and critique, it also prevents us from stepping into discipling others, stepping into the role of a spiritual father or mother. Too often we believe to serve in that type of role, we must have the Christian life mastered. Thankfully, my kids, the gardener kids, they will not grow into mature adults because Michelle and I have all of life mastered. We don't. If you run into someone who claims that, or lives as though they are the example to, to follow apart from Christ, find someone else. That's arrogance. Turn the other direction. It is not how much we've mastered the Christian life that gives us the authority or security to disciple others, but rather understanding who we are in Christ. We understand there are, there are Christian coming after us, Younger Christians, people who are not as far along in the faith, who need to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Individuals who disciple others do not point to anything great about them apart from who they are in Christ. They emphasize 
who they, who they are becoming in Christ and what it means to follow him. The Apostle Paul, when he repeats his appeal for the Corinthians to imitate him later in his letter, says this in chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. To, to be an example to others, to disciple others, to be someone others imitate. It does not mean we live the perfect Christian life. It does mean we are learning from Christ what it means to follow him, to live this new way of life. Paul was convinced that true transformation, discovering our new way of life, only comes through Christ. So he labored to make disciples not of himself, but of Jesus. People do not experience transformation of their way of life because of your awesome personality or your past experiences, but because you follow the person of Christ and you are growing in surrendering your will and your heart to him. That's what discipleship is about. So last week, in Pastor Chris's final sermon of 2020, he asked the question, as we transition into a new year, who are we going to be? What will we be defined by? I want part of the answer to that question. I want, I want it to be, as we follow Jesus, we want to be disciples. And we want to be disciple makers. As we step into that, of understanding what it means to be a disciple and to be a, a disciple maker. May we understand discipleship is not about experiencing feelings of fault or better behavior or transformed talk. It's about a transformed way of life. A life submitted and surrendered to Christ. May we be known for living out that type of life. Let's pray.